From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. The Prime Minister has squashed any changes to the Stage 3 tax cuts in the budget that Treasurer Jim Chalmers will bring down later this month. But there's a general agreement that the tax system needs revamping. That, of course, would be a politically hazardous task, not least because Labor promised at the election there would be no discretionary increases in tax this term, apart from dealing with tax avoidance by multinationals. Nevertheless, with the government locked into big spending for health, the NDIS and many other worthy things that people want and need, the debate about taxation won't go away. Today we talk with Rod Sims about this and other economic challenges. Sims is former head of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission and now is a professor at the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy. Last week he outlined some of his views on taxation at a revenue summit held by the Australia Institute, a progressive think tank. Rod Sims, let's start with the debate about stage three of the tax cuts that were legislated by the Morrison government. This stage is due to start in mid-2024. Are you sorry that the government won't be changing these tax cuts in the coming budget? I think the stage three tax cuts, Michelle, are an issue for others. I'm not an income tax uh, expert. I do know that Australia has a higher reliance on income taxes than other countries. I also know that as we get inflation, it uh, bites it. You know, we, we don't index the threshold, so more and more people advance up the tax scale. And of course, it was an election commitment as well. So look, I'll, I'll leave that to, uh, to others. Thanks. More generally, you suggest that income tax and company tax are not where we should be actually looking for tax reform. Why is that? I think we have plenty of other ways to raise taxation if that's what we want to do. I'm very much of the view that we should be altering the existing petroleum resource rent tax because I think it's, uh, it's flawed and we can get more money out of that pretty well straight away and very large sums of money, I think. How much? Oh, look, Michelle, I haven't done the detailed calculations, but we're certainly talking billions uh, per year, uh, but I can't put a number on it. But then, of course, you've got uh, extra taxes we could raise if we had a mineral resource rent tax. You've got taxes we could raise from a land tax. You know, land taxes, there's a $5 trillion base there that could yield quite a bit of money. It's quite progressive because obviously the wealthier you are, the more land you own. And if you don't have much money, you usually don't own much land. And of course, the old chestnut that if we want to reduce our carbon emissions, then I think there's just no way we can uh, meet our carbon reduction goals without having a carbon tax. Some of those proceeds could be used to help low income earners and the rest could be used to fund the carbon transition or anything else we want. So I think there's plenty of other ways to raise revenue. What about a GST change? I guess look, we can always do that. Our, our goods and services taxes uh, are lower than what they are in most other countries. So there's certainly scope there. I was really looking for taxes that might be more acceptable, goods and services tax at a time when we've got cost of living pressures. Maybe now's not the time to raise that, but 
I don't have a problem if we do, but I think, you know, there's a lot of pressures on a lot of people and yet mining and petroleum and oil and gas companies are making a lot of money. We desperately need to send a signal about favoring low carbon activity over high carbon activity, which is what a carbon tax would do. And as I say, a land tax, I think is a very progressive tax. So I guess I'm coming up with what I think are saleable options in this current environment. Do you think that any uh, credible tax reform package that was comprehensive would need to look not just at uh, what the federal government did, but state governments as well? Yes, I do. I think it would be ideal if the states took on using land taxes and got rid of stamp duties. I think that's the universal view of every person familiar with these issues in Australia, but also the state governments could raise more revenue from a land tax, not just to pay down or get rid of stamp duty, but also to improve their health and education. So they have got a tax base they can use if they want to. And in exchange, the Commonwealth, I think, should be the one doing most of the taxing of oil and gas and minerals in Australia. Now, the critics uh, on the latter point of oil and gas and minerals would say this would discourage investment in a a very uh, vital sector. Do you think there's any danger of that? No, I don't. The the companies will always come to where the minerals and oil and gas reserves are. I've dealt with this issue all around the world. Michelle, I've negotiated resource rent taxes in many, many countries. It's what I did in the early part of my career. And the way you frame these taxes is that they do allow companies to make a, a sensible return. The problem is when you get situations like we have now where there's large windfall gains going to some mineral companies and oil and gas companies, Australia's not sharing in those in an appropriate way. I think that you know any independent observer would reach that conclusion. And when you're talking about oil and gas and minerals, the main way Australia shares in the benefits of people exploiting those is by getting tax revenue. They don't employ that many people. So we're not getting a fair share. You've got high mineral prices, high gas prices all around the world. That's causing harm in Australia as well as elsewhere. Uh, yet we're not, we're not getting enough tax from them. I think that's a really unhealthy situation to be in. Now, I know you're dealing with the economics, uh, not the politics, but nevertheless, anyone who's uh, proposing any sort of strong reform has to have an eye to whether it's practical. So how can any government actually deal with the politics of tax reform? I'd make two strong points, Michelle. One is I find debate about reform in general in Australia to be quite unsatisfactory We've had numerous times, and I could give you examples, and I'm sure you've got them as well, where an idea has been floated, it got a negative reaction, and it was dropped straight away. The reforms that occurred many years ago, which you and I are very familiar with, the, uh, if I could use the term, the soil was well tilled. People were, you know, were, were ready for these ideas. They weren't just dropped on them out of the blue. They took a couple of years of investment of the Prime Minister, the Treasurer, senior ministers. So I think if the effort is put in to explain these things, then that can be, you know, we can achieve a lot more on the reform front than we do. The second point I'd make is that I suspect what we need to be doing over the next couple of years is explaining to people what the trade-offs are. 
and you know do people you know we can spend this amount on health and education and aged care and childcare not to mention defense with the tax revenue we've got now if people want us to spend more on those clearly we're going to have to raise taxes and we have to link the taxes with where the money is going to go and patiently take the electorate through that i think it can be done we also have to grow the economy, though, don't we, to uh, enable us to do some of the things that we want to do, and that gets us to productivity, which seems to be uh, stuck in a rut. What changes do we need to make? What wider reforms, leaving aside tax, to get better productivity growth? I'd make two points again. Firstly, I think if we want to spend more, we're going to have to raise taxes, I don't think productivity gains will come quickly enough to enable us to spend more. I think also the mindset of Australia at the moment is not really much in favour of productivity growth. My view is that to get productivity, you need to improve competition. It's all very well for companies to have the ability to innovate, but if they're not pressured by their competitors, why would they? So my reforms that I think we should be pursuing are firstly to improve our merger laws so that we don't get mergers in telecommunications, energy, transport that really convey a lot of market power to people and, and damage the economy. So we need better merger laws. Secondly, we should stop privatising assets in ways that see monopolies in private hands without any regulation and often with arrangements to stop them facing competition. I think we've got to have tests for making sure we do these things in a competitive way with proper regulation. You've got governments constantly doing things in an anti-competitive way. We've just started e-conveyancing to, you know, when you make sell a house. Uh, but of course, the state set up a monopoly to do that, whereas you could have easily had competition. So the, the mindset in Australia needs to change much more to pro-competition. And I'm certainly going to be doing all I can to, to bring that about, Michelle. Why do you think there is this community mood, uh, leaving aside even the, the legislative framework at the moment and action of government? Why is the community uh, not more into the drive for productivity? I think it is largely a problem of governments who haven't bought into it themselves. I mean, it's hard for the governments to explain it to the public if they're not there themselves. And so I think governments have had a, a mindset that really didn't think competition was all that important. And that's what we've got to change. If we get governments seeing that it's important, state and federal, uh, then I think we can convince the community. I mean, it's not hard for people to understand that if you have three bread shops that you can buy bread from, you'll get a much better deal than if the only choice you have is one bread shop. I mean, that's pretty easy to understand. Yet we do seem to create uh, a small number of players in Australia providing most of the, the goods and services that we consume. And we've just got to do more to deal with that. Airport slot, you know, slots for new entrants in aviation, more spectrum for new entrants in communications. There's just a whole host of issues. If we want to do more, to promote competition, we can, and that will help drive productivity. So have governments become policy lazy or uh, fearful of public reaction, or is it just a case of the politics of the moment, the tactics taking over from the, the policy strategy for the longer term? I think 
there's been a lot of influence of large companies that, you know, don't have a, I mean, it's not in their interest to have stronger merger laws. I think also, but I think one of the big issues is governments using privatisation as, as a source of money. So we've seen federal and state governments remove regulation before they privatise a monopoly, for example. So there's no curb on the monopoly raising prices at our ports, our airports, and in a whole host of other places, electricity. So really, it's been government desire to raise money from privatisation. But in so doing, they've seen prices rise. And when, of course, you've got high-priced ports and airports and transport and electricity, that damages the economy. So it's this focus on revenue. And if I could also add, Michelle, that's why I think privatisation's got a bad name. If you stop anybody in the street and you say, are you in favour of privatisation? Usually they'll say no, because they say, oh, it just leads to higher prices. And they're right. It does, because we're privatising very badly. So... Is the issue what you just said about privatising badly or is it privatisation as such? In other words, were we better off when a number of these assets were in government hands in the 70s, 80s? It's a judgment call. I think privatisation, uh, you know, privatising the Commonwealth Bank and uh, Telstra and Qantas, they were good things to do because, the, you know, they were just not well suited to being in government hands in in my view those things were privatized properly and some of the electricity assets that were sold were privatized properly but in the last 10 or 20 years we've been privatizing very badly to maximize proceeds so i think it's the way we privatize we should be privatizing to boost the economy to make sure that yes the private sector probably can run these things a bit better but if it's a monopoly it's got to be regulated and if you're going to privatise it, let's see how we can have it face competition because it'll only run well if it faces competition. I mean, if we're going to have a monopoly, Michelle, I'd rather it probably stay in public sector hands. Well, it's sort of done and dusted now, isn't it? There's not much left to privatise. So what you're saying is we need more uh, legislation to promote competition in these sectors. We can't go backwards, can we? Oh, I agree. Well, two things. Firstly, yes, we need to promote competition in these sectors. I mean, you've got Port Botany as the monopoly container port in Australia. The Port of Newcastle desperately wants to compete with it. And you've got government regulations stopping them doing that. Now, that should be removed straight away. That's just really silly. And you've got other examples of that all around the country. But the other point is, Michelle, we are still doing those things. You say we haven't got things to you know, privatise. But, you know, we've got the e-conveyancing was only done in the last year or two. Um, there is within land rail contemplation of intermodal terminals and making sure those are done in the right way. So th there's more decisions than you think coming up all the time. So I think look backwards and fix past problems and let's stop making those mistakes again in future. Let's just turn to the budget, which is nearly upon us. What should be the economic and fiscal priorities for this budget? We do have to get the deficit down quite a lot. Given where commodity prices are at the moment, frankly, our budget should be in surplus. And so that's impossible, I suspect, to achieve with this budget and the next May budget. But I think we should do all we can to reduce the deficit 
and thereby reduce demands on the economy. And that will mean the Reserve Bank doesn't need to raise interest rates as much as it otherwise would. So I'm afraid we need to get that deficit down as the number one priority. So that means spending cuts? Well, it does. I mean, we're going to get the deficit down anyway because of very high commodity prices, which weren't forecast in the forecasts behind the last budget. Also, much higher inflation wasn't factored in. So we're going to have a lot lower budget deficit through those two fortuitous circumstances. And we need to make sure we don't spend those proceeds. We just let the deficit come down. And yes, whatever, I mean, I see the October budget, the one coming up in a week or two, as being a housekeeping budget. Let, let's look at where savings can be made. After all, we've got a new government with a new sense of priorities, a new ability to look at things. And I suspect there's savings they can make in a range of places. And of course, they need to to meet some of their election commitments, but hopefully we can get that budget down, that deficit down a bit. Many people are feeling the cost of living increases very harshly on their personal budgets. And now we're facing the prospect of some really horrific increases in power prices over the next year. What can and should be done in this area? I think the main pressure is in power prices. I think the best thing we could do is get the price of gas down. I would personally like to put more pressure on the main East Coast gas producers, the three main players in Queensland, to divert more gas domestically at prices that are much more sensible than the ones we've got now. If we get the gas price down, because gas is often the producer of electricity that sets the price, that will help get electricity prices down. I think that's probably the most important thing we can do. Does this mean pulling the uh, infamous trigger to force them to act? The trigger is more a uh, supply issue. I think really it's the threat of pulling the trigger that should get them to basically, Michelle, meet the obligations they made when they built these projects. I mean, when they built these projects... They did say this wouldn't push up domestic gas prices. Now, that's wrong. It has. And so they need to be reminded of the commitments they made many, many years ago, over 10 years ago, and make sure that we have lower domestic prices. What is correct is that of all the gas exporting nations in the world, the east coast of Australia has the highest domestic gas prices. So we're putting less pressure on our gas exporters to keep domestic prices lower than all other countries around the world, and we need to address that. But nevertheless, this threat has been hanging around now for some months, hasn't it? And the government hasn't been willing to make good on it, and the gas companies don't seem to be taking much notice of it. There have been promises now that they will make sure of the supply, but that's at a, a level of the international price, which is so high. I think more pushing could be done, Michelle. Look, it is these are difficult issues because obviously you're sitting opposite three very sophisticated companies who have a massive amount of knowledge and can assert a whole range of things. But my point would be we're not talking about interrupting their contracts to export gas. That's not being discussed by anybody, certainly not by me. What we're talking about is the gas that they have available above those contract levels And that gas, I think, should be sent domestically or enough of it sent domestically so that we get the domestic prices back down to sensible levels very quickly. Uh, We should not have Australians suffering the high gas prices 
and therefore the high electricity prices like they are when the gas companies are making enormous profits. We have to, we have to fix that. Just finally, on a very different topic, when you were at the ACCC, you were instrumental in the former government's move to get the big tech companies like Facebook to pay media companies for content that they use. How well has this reform worked out, do you think? Oh, I think it's worked out very well, Michelle. Obviously, I'm very close to it, but uh, I've been around public policy for 40 years, and I think this is as successful as anything you can point to. So in the case of Google, they have effectively done a deal with every qualifying media company in Australia, large, medium and small. My estimate of Facebook is that they've done deals with media businesses that employ at least 85% of journalists. So yes, some media organisations didn't get a deal from Facebook, but the vast majority have, and everybody's got a deal from Google. So, you know, a lot of money's flowed into journalism. I've spoken to a number of media people in the media, and you'll have a view on this yourself, Michelle, but I've been told there's never been a better time to be a journalist, to get a job in journalism in Australia for many, many years. So I think it is seeing more money spent on journalism. The Guardian, for example, is increasing its staff by about 50% as a result of the deals they've got. So I think it's been very successful. Rod Sims, thank you very much for talking with us today on a range of issues. That's all for today's podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Thanks, Michelle. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.